Hello, wonderful listeners. This is Gerard Robinson coming at you again from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. As we know, this is a very special week for those who are involved in public education. It's called National Public Charter School Week. And my, of course, very smart, very forward-looking co-host knows something about charter schools, right? I'll take it. You know, there was a Pioneer Institute book about charter schools that I had a little something to do with, Gerard. Mm -hmm. But um, they're most near and dear to my heart because um, for the past 10 years, I have been a member of the City on a Hill Charter Public School Board. I was the board chair and I actually were term limited. So they actually, they gave me a 10th year um, by extension when I was only supposed to have nine, but it's an, it's an organization that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, a lot of, a lot of Boston charters. I have to give a shout out to, uh, to one of my colleagues, Sam Duell, who has been just writing some really cool stuff for National Charter School Week. So if you follow him on LinkedIn, on Twitter, uh, it's a great one to read on this topic. And I want to give a shout out to Nina Reese at the National Alliance for the work that uh, she's been doing for a number of years. I want to also give a shout out to Correga Rauch, who's the uh, president and CEO at the National Association of Charter School Authorizers. Uh, I want to say hello to the Kipps Drive family in Atlanta, Georgia. I was a founding board member of Kipps Drive uh, in 2009. They're doing some wonderful work in that city. A Blue Ribbon School was a charter school of the year for the state of Georgia. And also want to give a shout out to the Howard Fuller Academy in Milwaukee. Oh, uh, yeah. Really changed its name for him. And so this is just really a time, again, to celebrate, you know, what that sector has done to change the uh, social and economic trajectory of so many students uh, across the country. And we can learn lessons from them all the time. So yeah, proving it can be done, proving it can be done. So many charters are. Well, speaking of what schools can do, what's your story of the week? Oh, I got a good one. Okay. You know, I love me a little bit of a Florida tax credit scholarship program, Gerard. Yes, you do. So, <laughs> so like, let's just acknowledge that this has been, as, as I think we predicted, because, you know, we are such visionaries, Gerard, that uh, given the pandemic, this was going to be uh, uh, the year of choice in states, in legislation. And in fact, as I think we discussed last week, we have seen huge growth. I mean, we have doubled and we're still not done yet. The number of education scholarship account programs that we have in this country took, uh, as I think I said last week, 10 years to get the first five. And this year alone, we had another five waiting on one looking at you, New Hampshire. Um, let's see what we can do. But um, one of the things that I think has been overlooked is that some existing private school choice programs in places like Indiana and yes, Florida have been dramatically expanded. So Florida has long had, you know, um, what I would call the most robust environment for private school choice. And you know, you were, you were there on the, on the cutting edge of it all as commissioner Gerard. Um, but it's the Florida tax credit scholarship program, um, which is now, you know, now Florida is going to transition a lot of students who are on that tax credit scholarship, you know, using privately, um, using private money uh, given 
people receive a tax credit in exchange for a donation to fund students. That can be sometimes a little bit frightening if you don't get enough money in a year. Um, they'll be switching over to an education scholarship account that will be funded by the state. But the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship is really important in our understanding of what private school choice um, does for families because we've got a lot of data. So it's been around um, for, I think, oh gosh, now I'm going to get this wrong and my friends in Florida are going to be really upset with me. But it's been around for uh, you know more than a decade and it's just grown by leaps and bounds. And the great thing about Florida, and I'm a big supporter of this when it comes to private school choice legislation, is that kids that participate in these programs have to participate in norm reference tests. Now, we generally yes. don't like yeah. And we generally in, in the world of private school choice, we don't like private schools to have to take state tests because schools don't Correct. want to. Do it. <laughs> but we need some measure. We need to know, like, what are kids doing? Are they learning? And in Florida, they do that. And they also very transparently publish data every year about how kids are doing in schools on multiple measures. So this story that I have is actually about graduation rates in the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship. Now, I often get questions from people who either don't like private school choice, don't know if they should like private school choice about like, well, what do we know about outcomes? And the truth of the matter is, um, I don't know that academic outcomes are necessarily the most important thing as long as kids are receiving the education that they need to go on and do what they need to after high school. But comparisons are important. And this most recent report on graduation rates for Florida Tax Credit Scholarship students shows that um, 94.5%, graduation rate for 2019-20. This is a big deal. Now, I will note that the state of Florida has pretty high graduation rates at around 90%. But we got to put this in context. I mean, this is a big deal. So when you think about who gets the Florida tax credit scholarship, and this is another argument we hear all the time, oh, it must be all the you know wealthier kids that have all of this social capital. No. <laughs> in fact, by definition, to get a Florida tax credit scholarship, you have to come from a family that wouldn't normally be able to pay the cost of private school tuition. So this is um, evidence that the private schools that participate in this program are doing well by kids. Um, we don't want to talk about national graduation rates, which for many of the kids that would um, who fall into the demographic groups that participate in this tax credit program, nationally, the graduation rates would be much lower in the 80s. So this is really good news, Gerard. And it's it's heartening to have some outcomes data to show that, again, I think that, you know, what kids need and, and what parents want should, should be the reason for these programs, but having outcomes data to, so that we can understand that indeed kids are learning and not only are they learning, they're learning to a very high level and they're going on to have, um, opportunities after high school. Really, really important. And this is a big win for a step up for students. Um, the work they're doing, the work uh, John Kirtley has done for over a decade early on, Michael Benjamin, uh, both of them helped to create uh, a nonprofit to move this work forward. It's also uh, Patricia Levesque, uh, of course, who I know you know well. Right. But there are a ton of people in that state, you know, even uh, current, but also former governor now, U.S. Senator Rick Scott played a role in making sure that program to move forward. And it's it's helping a lot of students. And I had a chance to see it while in Florida, but even as president of Bayo, we supported a lot of our grassroots work. So glad to hear that graduation number. So my story is similar uh, in part because those students who leave um, high school, many of them go to college. 
And my story is about college and diversity, and it's from the Heckinger Report. Uh, Jill uh, Barche, May 10th, is the author. And it's covering a story about uh, research recently published by Christopher Bennett, uh, who took a look at 99 private universities and colleges across the country who adopted the, uh, the plan to basically get rid of SATs between 2005, 2006, and 2015, 2016. And what he wanted to figure out is whether or not moving the SAT as a requirement, in fact, created diversity. Well, he says, yes, but. Um, he took a look at schools that used it, and he took a look at schools that did not, and identified while there was you know, an increase of you know, three to four percentage points, uh, it wasn't as large as people would have expected. Uh, there was also an increase, uh, although not large, but nonetheless an increase in the number of Pell-eligible students who applied to school. And so there is at least some good news in the fact that it's moving the conversation in the right direction and the fact that, yes, some people uh, increased. But there was one point in the article, and this is from a professor at Penn State who said, many of the students who actually benefit from going to college in the first place have access to a number of, you know, I would say factors that would have probably made them successful in college anyway. And that while the SAT will tell us one thing, participation in extracurricular programs, that tells us something about students. Taking a look at the advanced placement classes they had, that says something about students. So um, I'm actually in a nuanced position on this because I want states to make a decision on what they want to do or schools really, if they want to keep it or not. We know for, you know, according to at least some research, the SAT score may predict how well you do your first year in college. It doesn't often predict whether or not you're going to finish in four years or your GPA. But another mm -hmm. interesting piece that he identified is that the number of women uh, increased uh, who were um, actually brought into schools by getting rid of the SAT. There's also some research they looked at in terms of Women may have lower scores than men, but they also have higher grades. So it is a, a interesting story about uh, this debate. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, but I do think as we try to diversify, one thing we have to look at is when we say we want to get rid of the SAT because it's racially biased, I would say maybe it's not racially biased as much as culturally biased. I went to Howard University, a black college. My roommates and a number of my friends had great SAT scores, and they're black. Uh, yep. There may have been some cultural dynamics that gave them a um, an advantage, and culture by this is just not phenotype. It could have been the education of the mom, the type of school they attended, extracurricular activities. So if we're going to get rid of it, I don't, I, I, I'm not going to buy that it's racially biased because even with Asian students, who we often say are the model minority, not all Asian students are doing well. I would say they're cultural dynamics, but that's my two cents. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Jared. I think this is such a such a nuanced issue in that, um, as, as I know I've admitted to you before, I used to work in testing. One yep. of the things I did when I worked in testing, now I was making uh, state criterion reference tests, but I used to run bias and sensitivity committees comprised of teachers who would mm -hmm. literally, we would pick apart test items, we would look at how different groups of students performed on those items. And if a certain group of students performed differently, 
we would look at the item and try and understand what biases were inherent. And often there were, but they weren't the items that made it onto the test. They might have been pilot items. So in that sense, I've always felt like, wow, you know, test makers, they really bend over backwards to get at this bias issue. But I think that the larger point you're making, I would agree with. When we talk about test being biased, we often think about it in terms of, oh, somebody, somebody's going to put an item on a test that asks kids, you know, about their family ski trip to Aspen or something like that. <laughs> and it's, and, and that's in fact, not what it is at all. It's instead these larger um, forces that are at play. Like what if kids been exposed to just over the course of their lives, not in terms of experiences. I, I always thought, well, you know, if a kid reads a passage about skiing in Aspen, uh, just because he, that person has been skiing in Aspen doesn't mean that they can comprehend the passage. And then you're, you know, you're saying that the kid who hasn't been doesn't have reading comprehension skills. I think it's instead this larger idea that um, all of the experiences that come to bear, and we know there's really interesting research around the pressures that certain groups of students feel when in a testing environment, stereotype threat, all of all of these other things. But thank you for pointing out that, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced. Now, I also think that, you know, this is a conversation that um, given the pandemic, I think so many schools are now going test optional that, um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what companies like SAT and ACT, and I think that they're very well equipped to do this, pivot to doing because um, as I keep telling my kid who is taking her first round of tests in school this week, warm reference test because she's at a private school, you know, this is information for your teachers. This isn't going to be a judgment on you. And it's a hard, it's a hard sell, <laughs> but, but I do think, you know, there's something really important that we can do with formative assessments. And, um, and I hope we don't, uh, throw the, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to think of another one. I was going to say throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I, I hope we can realize the value in assessment and move forward in this environment where I think a lot of tests like the SAT are probably going to have to find a different role to play. So. And it's so funny. You mentioned the part about, um, making it optional. Um, the researcher identified that 20 to 30% of the students, uh, who applied did not submit their SAT or ACT which meant that 80 to 70% still did, uh, yeah. even though it was optional. So some more to talk about this, and I'm sure it's going to come up later, particularly as we have debates about affirmative action uh, in the U.S. and what it means for African-American students, what it means for Asian students and others. Absolutely, Gerard. And, you know, we've got, so we're going to, we're going to switch gears here. We've got a really interesting conversation coming up after this about, about the Supreme Court, about um, former Justice Louis Brandeis and his influence and the legacy he left to the Supreme Court of the United States. But as we know, connections here, because um, the courts are hearing a lot of cases about college entrance examinations and who gets preference and, and what all this stuff means. And I think that we're going to have a lot of questions for our guest, Professor Melvin Urofsky, about all of this coming right up. Learning Curve listeners, we're lucky to have with us today Melvin Yurofsky, Professor of History Emeritus at Virginia Commonwealth University. He is the author or editor of more than 50 books and many articles. Among his works are the prize-winning Louis D. Brandeis, A Life, 
Dissent and the Supreme Court, and most recently, The Affirmative Action Puzzle, published in 2020. He's also the longtime editor of the Journal of Supreme Court History. He, his wife, Susan, and their dog, Simba, great name for a dog, live in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Professor Yurofsky, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're very excited to have you to learn um, about a topic that I know many of our listeners will find very, very interesting, and that is we're going to talk a a lot about your work, including um, your definitive work on Justice Louis Brandeis. So in the biography that you wrote of Justice Brandeis, you outline his life within the four careers, as you explain, in which he excelled as a lawyer, a reformer, a Zionist, and the U.S. Supreme Court justice. Could you talk for our listeners about why he is consistently ranked among the three most influential justices to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. And because we are um, made up of an audience that likes to think about schools, we would love to know what you think not only the public, but teachers and students should know about Justice Brandeis. Well, to explain why he is consistently ranked among the top three, you have to know who the other two are. Uh, One of them is John Marshall, the great chief justice, who is ranked up there because of what he did institutionally for the court. Essentially, he made it a co-equal branch of government, which it hadn't been before. Uh, The first chief justice, John Jay, resigned because he thought the court would never amount to very much of anything. The second person is Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., with whom whom Brandeis served on the court um, for more than 15 years. Uh, Holmes is considered great because he helped to reshape how the court thought about um, questions of constitutionality and the proper role of the court within uh, the framework of government. Brandeis essentially rewrote jurisprudence on the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech and on the Fourth Amendment, uh, which he used to develop a constitutional right of privacy, uh, which, although it remains somewhat controversial among some conservatives, has for the most part been accepted by most scholars and certainly by the public. And... um, He did this primarily in his dissents. What's interesting is his greatest opinions in many ways was he was dissenting from the conservative majority of the 1920s and early 1930s. And nearly every single one of his major dissents was eventually accepted uh, by the court, not always in his lifetime, but as he once said, his faith in time was great. And uh, the jurisprudence of free speech that the courts utilize today, the uh, interpretation of the Fourth Amendment that the courts utilize today, all derive from Brandeis' dissents. And that's why he's important. And he's also known for denouncing something that that will sound familiar today in today's context, right? For denouncing big banks, business monopolies, as well as big government. And he called this the curse of bigness. Could you talk briefly about how Justice Brandeis understood American constitutionalism and what we should learn today about how he interpreted the law to diminish consolidated financial and federal power? 
Well, there's nothing in the Constitution per se that says business is bad or that big business is bad. In fact, um, as one of my colleagues has pointed out, the courts have been favoring business uh, almost since the founding of the Republic. And also, I think it's important to know Brandeis didn't oppose bigness just because it was big. He opposed it for a reason. And that reason was that it would exercise an undue influence uh, on the political and social systems. And in this, he was absolutely right. Um, his economics have you know, been criticized because um, big business can often do things that small businesses can't. Nearly all major R&D enterprises are parts of uh, big business, not of small business. But as we've seen, especially in the last several years, the amount of money that big business can use to influence the political system um, is enormous. Uh, you know, we now talk about dark money. Um, the current court, which is extremely conservative, has held that um, people can essentially give as much money as they want uh, to whatever candidates they want, and that corporations are free to spend their money to try to influence elections. Um, so in this, uh, this is what Brandeis was worried about, not the bigness per se, although he believed that uh, as corporations grew bigger, they would inevitably try to use their, their influence in ways that were contrary to the public good. Um, and he, on that, I think he, he was right. When we talk about overturning um, cases like Citizens United, what we're saying is essentially what Brandeis said, that corporations have too much political influence, which they shouldn't. It's fascinating to think of in today's context. I know just today, um, and the day that we are recording this, there's a lot in the news about uh, Facebook, the power of Facebook, and their desire to start a new social media platform for for younger children, and the you know political powers that be are trying to fight back. So, in, in especially in this era of big tech, a lot of implications for um, for what you've just explained. Brandeis is also known for a particular phrase, and that is laboratories of democracy. And this was um, this came out of his dissenting opinion in the Supreme Court case, New State Ice Co. versus Liebman. Um, can you explain what, what laboratories of democracy mean in the context of that opinion and Brandeis's view of progressive federalism? Can you explain that for our listeners, okay. please? Well, here you have to go back to realize that the country was set up um, as an experiment. Um, the only other country in the world at that time, which was hardly a model that you know could be followed, uh, of a federal system was um, Switzerland. And what the founders tried to do was set up a balance between the federal government and the states. Now, as I tell my students, over time, that balance has shifted radically, sometimes, uh, especially during times of crisis, such as war, everybody looks to the federal government to do something, um, such as during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. 
at other times as a reaction, and people want to have a smaller, less powerful federal government, and they look to the states to do it. Um, this has been, in, in one way, a history of American constitutionalism for over 225 years. Um, what exactly is a federal system? Who has what powers? How can they be exercised? At what point does the federal government become too large and powerful and the states too weak and vice versa? What Brandeis believed was very similar to what the founders believed, that there was a fe the federal government should be powerful within its sphere, its sphere being the Article I, Section 8 powers that the Constitution gives to Congress. This includes control of interstate commerce, foreign commerce, protecting the country, raising an army, that sort of thing. But the rest should be left to the states, he thought, uh, because the states were nearer to the people. They were smaller. Uh, he opposed big government, um, overpowering government as much as he opposed big business, you know, overpowering business. And he thought the states were small enough, but not too small, uh, were small enough uh, that they could experiment. And that what one state could do, uh, other states could watch. Um, I lived for many years in Virginia. And um, the story I often heard since my wife was in government, I, I often spoke with people in government. And I asked them, uh, why haven't you done something? And the answer was, we're waiting to see how it works in New York and California. And if it works there, then we'll, we'll see about it. And if it doesn't work there, then we haven't lost anything. And this was essentially the idea that Brandeis had. One courageous state, as he put it, could try something. Uh, they could experiment. And where do you can have experiments? You have them in laboratories. So that if one state tried something, uh, they should be allowed to do it. And um, in many instances, when Congress passes major bills, um, they very often uh, will include an opportunity for states to get a waiver. Uh, when we were in um, Virginia, my wife was uh, commissioner of the Department of Rehab Services, the majority of which funding came from um, the Federal uh, Department of Human Resources. And they had some ideas that they wanted to try, but were not allowed to under the way the law was then being interpreted. So they would put together a proposal, go up to Washington, talk to the secretary or undersecretary, whoever was in charge of this program. Uh, and very often they would get a waiver. All right, we'll let you try this for a year or two and see if it works. And in those programs that worked well, very soon the regulations were changed to allow other states to do it. And this is exactly the type of laboratory of democracy uh, that Brandeis was talking about, where an individual state could try something. The problem when the federal government tries something, it's got to be done all over. You can't just try a pilot program here. You have to make something available. You couldn't like, for instance, you couldn't do Obamacare in Maryland alone. You had to do it in all 50 states, the district and some territories.
Um, so this is uh, what the laboratory of democracy meant. Well, Professor, speaking of Virginia, I'm actually speaking to you from Charlottesville, where I know you spent some time. So great to have you join us. Uh, Charlottesville is a very nice place. <laughs> so in dissent and the Supreme Court, you outline the vital role of dissenting opinions in uh, Supreme Court history and how they can inform later majority decisions. Uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan was, uh, you know, the lone dissenter in the 1869 Plessy v. Ferguson decision. Could you tell our listeners about Plessy, about Harlan's dissent, and how it helped to you know, really lead to the landmark 1954 decision, Brown v. Board of Education, which was decided this month in 1954? Uh, well, Plessy in 1896 was a case about a uh, Louisiana separate car law in which people of color had to ride in cars separate from where uh, white people rode. Um, and what the court said, although not using the actual words, was that as long as the accommodations were equal, they could be separate, that the 14th Amendment uh, did not require social equality. And what Harlan recognized was that separate could never be equal. Uh, it, and that was the basis of his lone dissent uh, in Plessy and in a few other um, early civil rights cases in which um, the court essentially told the southern states, um, you can have separate schools, you can have separate uh, transportation, um, so long as they're equal. And um, the states, of course, did not make them equal. The um, type of schools that were considered equal were far from equal. They were very often one room, unheated um, buildings where the students used, used textbooks that were out of date. And um, for a very long time, by the way, um, Harlan's opinion in Plessy uh, was practically ignored. There were, in 1946, a couple of scholars did an article in which they said that among the 12 leading casebooks that were in use in American law schools, not a single one included Harlan's dissent in Plessy. And I think that tells you a great deal about... Uh, what the state of racial relations were at the end of World War II. But dissents don't go away. Um, they, they lie there, as one scholar puts it, like buried ammunition waiting for someone to dig it up. And the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which was then headed by Thurgood Marshall, um, had not forgotten um, Plessy's opinion. Uh, no, the Harlan dissent in Plessy. And they went on a deliberate plan. They were going to deal not with the separate part, but with the equal part. And during the late 1930s and 1940s, uh, the Legal Defense Fund filed dozens of suits against Southern states demanding 
that they in fact provide equal facilities in schools. By the time Marshall was ready to take on the separate part, he faced a, a possible backlash among the NAACP members, many of whom were middle-class teachers who thanks to the Legal Defense Fund were now getting pay that was roughly equal to that of white teachers in Southern schools. A number of new school buildings had been built in fact, Farmville, Virginia, where the schools closed down for a couple of years, was about ready to finish a new high school for black students. And um, finally, the Supreme Court in uh, the Texas law school case gave the NAACP the um, go ahead, if you wish, that they would be willing to consider an attack on the separate part as well as the equal part. Um, in the Texas law school case, the one thing that the justices really knew about was what made a good law school. And they could tell that the ramshackle law school that Texas has set up for black students was nowhere equal to that of the University of Texas Law School. As um, Marshall said, that was our road plan. We now knew where to go. And they essentially revived Justice Harlan's dissent in which they argued that separate could never be equal. So dissents like that of Harlan and Plessy um, are rare uh, in that they ultimately carry the day. A lot of dissents don't. One of the things I made clear in my book that a majority of dissents are quickly and rightfully forgotten, but there's a handful of them that stand out. Brandeis wrote some, Holmes wrote some, and Harlan wrote some. And it's uh, these dissents that uh, ultimately are accepted as the law. When I think about the things you just mentioned, I also think about uh, Charles Hamilton Houston. Uh, and the role that he played at Howard yep. Law School in creating a generation of social engineers who, in fact, would uh, resurrect the ammunition in a dissent in one case and at the same time use the Bill of Rights and the Constitution once used to hold their uh, their ancestors in chains to use it to break them. So thank you for sharing that. That was Brown, 1954. Let's move to contemporary time and talk about another issue of race. In your 2020 book, The Affirmative Action Puzzle, A Living History from Reconstruction to Today, it examines one of the thorniest political and legal topics of our era. Would you uh, briefly explain to us, you know, the main historical touch points of the book, as well as what you see as the legal, legal debates surrounding affirmative action in the coming years? Well, there's been affirmative action around for a long time in that the government has, and colleges and universities, have always favored certain groups. Sometimes this is uh, benign and sometimes it's not. Uh, to give you one example, uh, when I went to Columbia College back in the day, as it were, uh, after I graduated, I worked uh, during my graduate school in the admissions and financial aid office. And what I learned was that Columbia divided its applications into three piles. 
One was from the five boroughs of New York. One was from a 50 mile radius, which was essentially New Jersey, Connecticut, up, you know, um, Westchester, the suburbs of New York City. And the third group was outside the 50 mile radius and included the rest of the world. Uh, Columbia could have filled their entire incoming class from Bronx Science or Stuyvesant, but they didn't want to be in New York City school. They wanted to be a school with an international reputation. Uh, the hardest place to get in was if you lived in New York City because you were competing against all those um, geniuses from uh, Bronx Science and from Stuyvesant. Next hardest were um, the suburbs. And the easiest in some ways, although not necessarily easy, was beyond 50 miles. And fortunately, I happened to live beyond 50 miles. And while I would have liked to think I might have gotten in otherwise, I was I was a beneficiary of an affirmative action program. Now, more recently, affirmative action, starting with the Johnson and Kennedy administrations, tried to help people of color overcome um, the legacy, first of slavery and then of Jim Crow. Um, Lyndon Johnson in a famous speech at Howard University said, you can't keep a person tied up in chains uh, before, uh, you know, for years before a race, then take the chains off, lead them to the starting line and expect him to compete on any basis of equality. And so what affirmative action starts out to do is how do we help people of color? especially gifted people of color, overcome um, the legacy of racism that we still have in this country. In the 1964 Civil Rights Act, there is a provision which essentially says um, that no federally aided program can discriminate on the basis of race. Uh, and this was understood, and it was quite clearly understood to mean that not only could you not discriminate against people because of race and religion and ethnicity and gender, et cetera, but you couldn't discriminate for them either. And another part of the 64 Civil Rights Act established the Equal Opportunity Commission. And this is the villain in my story because as far as I'm concerned, the type of um, affirmative action that Johnson had in mind and which has received praise from many people who oppose affirmative action in general was uh, what I called in the book soft affirmative action. Essentially it says we're gonna open doors that had been closed before and invite in groups that we had not invited in before. But we're going to hire people on the basis of merit. We're going to accept them into college on the basis of merit. We're going to accept them into professional schools on the basis of merit. And as I said in the book, only an out and out bigot could oppose this type of affirmative action. It essentially opens the doors of opportunity and say, if you've got it, if you've got the skill, if you've got the merit, come on in. 
But what happened during the 1970s, and which caused an enormous backlash, was the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission set up a numbers game in which they said, not only do you have to open the doors of opportunity, but you've got to hire people. You've got to let people in here. And businesses who like to work by the numbers said, fine, tell us how many blacks you want, how many women you want, we'll hire them. And uh, that's when the reaction to affirmative action began. Um, initially, the Supreme Court ruled that um, uh, colleges could use affirmative action, providing race was just one of the factors that they took into consideration. Um, later on, a more conservative court um, upheld this view uh, and said that you could use race as part of what they termed a holistic approach. Um, what did race contribute to this student's um, merits for being admitted into the program? Because there are things that a black student from a poor neighborhood or from a you know, rural South can bring to a place like Harvard or Columbia or Yale um, that can add to the teaching thing. Uh, you know, as a longtime teacher, and every teacher I know believes that there ought to be diversity in the classroom and in the faculty uh, because more learning takes place that way. But a lot of um, white workers and white parents uh, believe that the reason that they didn't get a particular job or that their son or daughter didn't get into an Ivy League school is because a person of color was given that position without the merit that their child had. Um, this is usually not true. In fact, it's almost always not true. Um, the number of black, you know, people of color who are taken on affirmative action is far smaller than the number of students accepted in Ivy League schools because uh, of the legacy uh, protocols, where if you're the son or daughter of an alum, uh, you get a preferred position in admissions. Uh, it is a difficult question. It has not been solved. It sort of went underground for the past year because of COVID. <clears throat> but I think that as schools reopen, as they start to admit students, uh, and given the current nature of the Supreme Court, there's already one uh, case working regarding Harvard's admissions process. Uh, it would not surprise me to see an affirmative action case come before the court in the next few years. And I would not at this point want to venture how this particular court would um, rule on that case. I had an opportunity to read The Shape of the River, uh, published by former Harvard right. President Derek Bakken. Princeton uh, President William Bowman, and they made a really compelling argument, very similar to yourself about affirmative action. Do you think that part of the dynamic now in terms of the thorniness is the fact that we now have Asian American students who are raising questions about merit in ways African Americans raised questions about race? And do you think we'll ever get away from a quota system? Or is that just a term we use to 
you know, gin up more controversy? Well, The Shape of the River was, I think, a very important book. And I, if you look at my footnotes, you'll see that I relied uh, on it for part. One of the interesting things that the two of them pointed out was that the whole affirmative action controversy uh, really concerns a couple dozen schools, no more. The Ivy League, the public Ivies, and a handful of, um, of other schools, such as um, UC Berkeley, um, that for the most part, uh, the majority of colleges and universities in this country um, accept the majority of their applicants. And, um, but everybody thinks that their child has to go to an Ivy League school. And um, the percentage of acceptances at these schools uh, continues to go down. You know, as the more and more uh, people apply, um, they can only take so many people in, in, into their freshman class. So um, I think Harvard had something like 16 or 17,000 applications um, for uh, the class uh, this coming fall. And they're only going to take, uh, I think, what's their class, 1,500 or so? Uh, that's not, a lot of people are going to get uh, letters that say no. Now, um, I think it, it is a question that's not going to go away. The Asian students are a unique um, situation in that no one questions uh, that as a whole, they are a well-qualified group. It is a culture that um, uh, respects and encourages learning and education. Uh, what uh, some of my colleagues have said is that the Asians today are the Jews of 100 years ago who face similar types of uh, prejudice. In California, uh, where the public schools, uh, public colleges are no longer allowed to use race in any way, shape, or form for admissions. Um, there are some uh, schools, especially the science schools, where a majority of the freshman class are of Asian origin. Um, I, for one, don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I think that and a lot of the Asian students don't think so either. They want a more diverse um, uh, student body. I think, um, as I said, COVID just uh, put a damper on this for a year. But as we return to whatever is going to be the new normal, um, I think we're going to hear more and more about this problem. Thank you, Professor. So let us end by giving you an opportunity to read um, something that you've written. Well, actually, I'm going to read something that Brandeis wrote. Excellent. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, um, I gave a talk at the Supreme Court uh, as part of the lecture series that um, the Supreme Court Historical Society runs. And I was introduced by Justice Elena Kagan. Um, she introduced me by telling the audience that Brandeis was her favorite justice and that since everybody knew who I was, 
because they had a program that said something about me. Instead of talking about me, she was going to read from her favorite opinion that Brandeis wrote, his dissent or his concurring opinion in Whitney versus California. And I think I'm going to do the same thing. This was the most important free speech case of the 20th century, I think. Brandeis wrote the following. Those who won our independence believe that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. Fear of serious injury cannot alone justify suppression of free speech and assembly. Men feared witches and burnt women. It is the function of speech to free men from the bondage of irrational fears. Those who won our independence by revolution were not cowards. They did not fear political change. They did not exalt order at the cost of liberty. To courageous, self-reliant men with confidence in the power a free and fearless reasoning applied to the processes of popular government. No danger flowing from speech can be deemed clear and present unless the incidence of the evil apprehended is so imminent that it may befall before there is opportunity for full discussion. Only an emergency can justify repression. Such must be the rule if authority is to be reconciled with freedom. Such, in my opinion, is the command of the Constitution. It is therefore always open to Americans to challenge a law bridging free speech and assembly by showing that there was no emergency justifying it. Thank you so much. And speaking of Justice Kagan, when she was the dean at Harvard Law School, rather than take on the name as chair, uh, as a royal chair, um, uh, at Harvard Law School, she actually chose to uh, create a chair named the Charles Hampton Houston Chair uh, as her uh, as her role at the law school, which speaks to a number of the things that you just mentioned. Uh, Cara and I want to thank you so much for what you've said today, uh, for the work that you've done, and for keeping the issue of the Supreme Court, not only the, the, the uh, dissent, but also the importance of words and what they mean across space and time. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much, Professor. So my tweet of the week is from Neil McCluskey, uh, who is at Cato. And this is from May 10th. He says, Dear Media, stop reporting average tuition at, quote, independent schools as all private schools. It massively inflates average tuition at private schools, which is about 11200 Here, here, Neil, thank you for making that point. Um, private schools do not cost as much as we think. 
We often want to use sit well friends where many members of Congress yeah. send their children. Some of them, of course, who don't support the D.C. scholarship program. But yes, thank you for doing that, Neil. And that's my tweet of the week. Yeah. And let's let's also just say, Gerard, how much do you think D.C. public schools spend per student? $23,415.26. There you go. So not as much as Sidwell Friends, but I can guarantee you it's a lot more than the Catholic schools <laughs> in, oh, the, in yeah. the city that are down the street that are doing it for probably, that are charging less tuition than they actually need to operate because they care about kids. So yes, we, we, like, to, we like to quote Neil's tweets because I tell you what, he often gets it right. So thank you for that one. Gerard, mm. next we get to talk to a teacher. Isn't that cool? We talked to a lot of former teachers here. Here, we're not talking to a former teacher. We are going to be speaking with a retired teacher, but I think that there's a distinction there. We're going to be talking with Rafe Esquith. He is a retired award-winning teacher at Hobart Elementary School in Los Angeles, and I'm betting you can make some connection to Hobart Elementary School in Los Angeles, Gerard, so gauntlet thrown. Mm -hmm. um, and he is the founder of the Hobart Shakespeareans who annually stage performances of unabridged plays by William Shakespeare. So I'm just going to really quick say elementary schools, unabridged William Shakespeare plays, as much as I love my kids and their drama teachers, they did Shakespeare last year. It was abridged and we all survived. So <laughs> I am really, I think that this is going to be an entertaining conversation and eager to learn more. So until then, Gerard, what are you going to be doing this weekend in beautiful Charlottesville? We're going to go outside and walk in one of the local parks here that we haven't been to in a while. So be good to get out with the ladies. Yes, it will. It's always good to get out with the ladies, I'm sure. They're, good. They're a good group. Well, until then, stay safe, have fun, and talk to you next week. <laughs> 